Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. These Wednesday nights we have finished the book of Acts and now we're going to jump into a study in the book of Hebrews. And so Hebrews chapter 1, just going to read the first three verses right now. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the radiance of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we're going to talk about the incomparable Jesus Christ. So we talked about the indestructible life of Christ this past weekend with his resurrection, and now we'll talk about the incomparable Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words that open the book of Hebrews, some of the neatest words in the scriptures about Jesus. And we're just so thankful, Jesus, for the way uh, you loved us and the way that uh, since you have come, no one on earth ever needs to ask again, what is God like? Because you've been here, you've walked among us. And so uh, to see you is to see the Father. And we're so thankful that uh, having known Jesus, we know the heart of God. And we're thankful, Jesus, that through faith in you, we now know God as Heavenly Father. We are in relationship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. And we just pray that as we work our way through the book of Hebrews, we'll see that you are better and you're the best. You're better than any angel. You're better than Moses. You're better than any priesthood. You are all in all. And so we worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you have ever heard the teaching that actually goes back a couple hundred years, I think, called One Solitary Life, but let me read it to you. It's pretty neat. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. That was James Francis back in the 1900s that wrote that. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, so as we work our way through, we're talking about God speaking in the past and God speaking in the present. 
and into the future through his son Jesus. And so your first fill in the blank there is God spoke in the past through his multiple prophets. So verse one there, your, uh, your um, fill in the blank is the word past. God spoke in the past various times. He's referring here to the times God spoke in what we call the Old Testament. The 39 Old Testament books were written over 1,500 years, and which is pretty amazing. Uh, part of it was written 1,400 years before Jesus Christ by Moses in the wilderness and on the mountaintop. Part of it was written 1,000 years before Christ by Solomon in his palace in Jerusalem. Part of it was written 500 years before Jesus Christ by Daniel in the pagan stronghold of Babylon. So think about the diversity there. Three different continents the Old Testament was written on. And, uh, you know, uh, the Bible includes three different languages when you include the Greek of the New Testament. So Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament, translated uh, Old Testament into the Greek language before Christ ever came. And then the New Testament is in common Greek uh, using not only priests and prophets, but... Uh, uh, you know, farmers and uh, shepherd boys and others to write. So in the past, God spoke, it says, in various times through his prophets. But here it also says in the past, God spoke in various ways. And I wrote here, what an understatement. What an understatement, spoken in various ways. You're telling me he spoke in various ways. Think about some of the things we know about Old Testament revelation. God spoke to Moses at a burning bush. <laughs> He spoke to Balaam through what? Donkey. Through his donkey, yeah. God spoke to Elijah through a still small voice. He spoke to Ezekiel in the midst of a whirlwind. He spoke to Isaiah in a vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had been king for 55 years. Uh, what, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 14 years, uh, which seemed like a long time and no president can go more than eight. Uzziah had been uh, king for 55 years. But uh, in the midst of those changing of circumstances, Isaiah saw God high and lifted up. God spoke to Hosea through adverse family circumstances. My goodness, Hosea. And so he spoke in the past in various ways to the prophets. Now, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. So from Hebrews, go to the right a little bit more. Hebrews is the first of what we call the general epistles uh, in contrast to the ones written by Paul. Hebrews might have been written by Paul, but uh, we don't know. I tend to think it might have been Barnabas, uh, since it uh, is clearly things about priests, and he was from the uh, tribe of Levi. Um, and so anyway, and so encouraging. Barnabas was Mr. Encouragement, right? The son of encouragement. And man, Hebrews 11, right? By faith, this one did this. By faith, that one did that. Hebrews 12, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So much encouragement there. So we'll talk more about that as we go along a little bit, because we really don't know but others have been proposed as well as possible authors for it. But after James, there's, after Hebrews, there's James and then 1 Peter. And look what uh, he says in verses 10 through 12. I'm going to find it. There it is. Of this salvation, the salvation that we find in Christ, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So, First uh, Peter 1 tells us about those prophets speaking and the fact that uh, the Spirit of Christ uh, moved in and through them 
any reading of the Old Testament shows the anticipation and the expectation that Messiah is coming. So there's the next fill in the blank, the word expectation. There are scores of prophecies about Christ's first coming. But this uh, evening, I only have time to go over my favorite six. So can anybody tell me what was the prophecy made 4,000 years before Christ walked the earth? What's the very first prophecy in the Bible about the coming of Christ? All the way back to the third chapter of the Bible. Adam and Eve fall into sin. And Kenny, we talked about the sin in the world. Even before uh, you, you know, uh, they, they lived another day, God went ahead and promised them the possibility of future restoration and redemption, which is pretty cool. So here's what God told Satan in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So yeah, Satan got to get the Messiah nailed to the cross, but Jesus crushed him through that death on the cross. Everything needed for a sinner to be saved happened in that moment. Isn't it interesting that that prophecy says, Satan, there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed. Now, women don't have seed, they have eggs, right? So there's a prophecy that goes right along with the virgin birth that was to come. So all the demonic powers of hell couldn't stop the future birth of the Messiah to a virgin. And his, you know, that meant he was, didn't inherit a sin nature like Adam and Eve uh, passed on to the rest of the human race. Where people are sinners by nature and early on in life make their own sinful choices that they'll be judged for. Jesus didn't inherit the sin nature. He was a perfect second Adam. And of course, uh, he made it all the way through life without sinning making him able to be our champion. When David beat Goliath, all Israel won that day. The Philistines had said, we're going to put forward our champion. You put forward your champion. And nobody wanted the task for Israel until David came in and said, well, he's bigger than me, but God's bigger than him. This is a matter of faith, everybody. You know, trusting in faith and letting God do what God does, right? I mean, God did. So... Uh, I think about what Kenny shared with us earlier. When he pushed that fellow out of the way, that fellow benefited from Kenny being his champion in that moment, right? And uh, that's what Jesus did for us. So uh, he, you, you're going to bruise, he will bruise your head. You're going to bruise his heel. Uh, well, how about 2,000 years ago when Jacob blessed Judah in Genesis chapter 49, this is verses 10 and 11, a second prophecy of Christ said that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah and the prophecy said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, what does Shiloh mean? Does anybody know? Shiloh means light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So the scepter won't the, depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until the light of the world comes, till Shiloh comes, and to him will be the obedience of the people. This one will have to be obeyed. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So sometime in the future, a descendant of Judah, the ruling tribe, will ride in on a donkey and wear bloody clothes. Wow, pretty cool. That's neat. It is neat, isn't it? That's very neat. Yeah. Well, how about 1,400 years before Christ came? The great Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18:15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Him you must hear. So uh, Muslims say, well, that's the prophet Muhammad. But, of course, uh, 
Muhammad didn't die for anybody's sins. In fact, he um, uh, was very much a troubled man who uh, asked of others what he wasn't willing to do himself. He said Muslim men can have uh, four wives, but the prophet had given him a special dispensation, so he had 13 or 14. Aisha was six years old when he married her, nine years old when he consummated that relationship. We were, weird, we were weirded out this past week when the Dalai Lama turned out to be some kind of pedophile, you guy. Kiss my tongue, he told a child and stuff like that. That's, that's nobody you want to follow or anything like that. But uh, Moses wrote about Jesus to come. He'll be the great prophet, him you must hear, you must listen to and obey. We're writing 700 years before Christ, Micah the prophet wrote, but you Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And he will stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Christ is called the Prince of Peace, right? So Micah said there's going to be one born in Bethlehem who's always lived. <laughs> he's always lived, but he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And of course, Christ didn't start to exist when he was born of Mary in Bethlehem. He had always existed, and somehow in the beautiful, mysterious, wonderful work of God, God put all uh, that 24 chromosomes into Mary, and we had the virgin birth, the one who had already, the one who created all things, all of a sudden uh, added human flesh to himself in a virgin's womb. What a mystery. What a beautiful mystery. But he was doing that so he could fully experience all that we do, go through all temptations, but without sin. And it's not the person that <laughs> is tempted and gives in to temptation that can help you. They're just a little further along than you are, you know. We get all kinds of self-help books, and it's amazing how many people write. Now listen, God is so gracious, and I wouldn't be here if there wasn't life after uh, divorce because my mom was married before my dad, right? Uh, and so I was the first child for my mom's second marriage. So praise God how he works and stuff like that. Um, and I, I'm trying to remember the point I was just about to make, but it's eluded me. That'll come back in a second. How about that? Um, so God can do great things going forward, and we'll just keep on going with what we got here. Writing 700 years before Christ was Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Also from Isaiah, we think about some of the verses we shared this past week. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall, he shall see the labor of his soul. Be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many. So those are all great prophecies, and what Hebrews opens by saying, in the past God spoke at various times and in various ways, and we think about these different circumstances, these wonderful prophecies of Messiah to come. But one of my favorites, because in it God removes any doubt that his word is absolutely true, you can just take it to the bank, is the one written by Daniel 500 years before Christ. And we know it was... Uh, before Christ came, some used to doubt that. This prophecy is so specific, they said, no, he's writing after the fact. But this was already translated into the Greek language before Christ came. So not only had it been originally prophesied back in Babylon, Daniel in Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic, but then it uh, comes into, uh, it, it was already there for Jesus when uh, he came. 
Daniel 9, 25 and 26. Now this takes a little bit of understanding, but um, do you remember when back in, uh, when, when Jacob had to work for Rachel, uh, it says he, um, he had to work for her before he could marry. Laban said, you've got to work for her. And it says that he worked for her one week. Now, was the one week um, seven days? No, what was he referring to? Seven years, right? So Jacob worked for seven years. It's called a week back in Genesis. And um, at the end of that time, Laban pulled the old bait and switch in the dark with it when he was drunk, and it wound up being, in the morning it was Leah, the other sister. And Laban said, well, no big deal. Work for me another week. <laughs> Work for me another week. And I'll give you Rachel, the one you really want. And so Jacob did, and he, you know. So it's not two weeks of time that went by. It was seven years, and then another seven years, right? So uh, the the word in the Hebrew actually means seven. So when we read in Daniel, week, understand we could say sevens, and it's referring to years there. So here's what it says: Daniel nine twenty five and twenty six. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven sevens and 62 sevens. What's seven plus 62? 69, right? 69 sevens, 69 weeks, 69 weeks of years. And after the 62 weeks, which is really after the 69 because the sevens before the 62, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Now, by the way, the prophecy is of 77, 70 weeks, and Daniel 9 goes over the first 69, talks about Messiah being cut off, and then really it points to a future time where that last seven-year period will happen, and that's what gets described all the way at the end of Revelation. In Revelation 5, uh, 6 to 19, that's the seven years back and all those Old Testament prophecies of trouble for Israel and the world is uh, during that time, after the rapture, we believe. But uh, let's just walk this through. So 69 sevens, if you multiply 69 times seven, you get 483 years, right? Uh, it looks like the decree that is talked about in verse 25 that Daniel mentioned is when Artaxerxes, March 4th, 444 BC, which described in Nehemiah chapter two, when he said, okay, we need to go and rebuild, not the temple, it had already been rebuilt, but rebuild the walls for Jerusalem. So very specific, he says, they're going back to rebuild uh, the command to restore and build Jerusalem and its walls, rebuild that back up, not the temple that had already happened. So 483 years, times the only kind of calendar they would have known, a lunar calendar. The lunar calendar has how many days? 360. Uh, every 30 days we're gonna get a new moon, right? Uh, so it's uh, the, the Jewish people, most peoples of the world used a lunar calendar. If you multiply 483 years times 360 days, you get 173,880 days. So if you start with March 4th, 440 BC, and factor everything in, you get to March 29th, AD 33, uh, which it would have been the day that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. What else happened on Palm Sunday? We didn't mention it this two Sundays ago, but we could have. That's when the sacrificial lambs were brought from Bethlehem into Jerusalem to be slaughtered during the Passover meal. So uh, until Messiah is cut off, right? Later that week, April 3rd, 
33 AD, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, but the grave couldn't hold him, he rose. But you're going to search in vain for any of the world's religions to produce anything like that. There's, it's, it's not there. The Quran has one prophecy. Muhammad said, I'll return to Mecca, I think it was, or Medina, and he could fulfill that himself, right? I'm going to go to McDonald's and get a burger later. <laughs> and I can fulfill that prophecy if I, my heart doesn't have a cardiac event first. Um, but uh, so, yeah, uh, there's just nothing like it. God's, God can tell the future in advance in the scriptures. So many examples of that in the scriptures. He stands above time. It's another thing that shows us how he's all-powerful and all-knowing. Uh, what's really crazy is he can even factor in, he can predict something and factor in the choices that people are going to make. That's why Jesus said, yeah, somebody's going to betray me. Doesn't have to be Judas. Judas became the one to betray uh, fulfilling scores of prophecies or many prophecies, but he didn't have to be that guy. He could have made a different choice, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Jewish establishment of the first century could have received Christ and he could have gone right on to ruling on earth. Uh, but the prophets understood, you know, that uh, they didn't understand. They just spoke what God had them speak. And so now we can look back and see it all in there. Um, and it's just startling that way. One of my favorite is also in Daniel, where Daniel looks up in chapter 7 and sees the Son of Man returning to judge before Jesus ever became the Son of Man. He was always the Son of God. God the Son came to earth. When he went back to heaven, he took back to heaven something he hadn't come down with, glorified human flesh. And now he's up there as the Son of God, Son of Man. 500 years before Christ, Daniel saw next to the ancient of days, somehow one looking like the Son of Man, he's like, one of us is up there. I don't get it. How could that be? And that's the one that's given all authority and is going to come and judge. We're pretty wild. Revelation 19, that's when Christ returns, the Son of God, Son of Man. So you're going to search in vain for anything like that. People talk about the writings of Nostradamus. A lot of vague stuff in Nostradamus that can be applied a lot of different ways and stuff like that, but certainly didn't claim to be religious literature. So the Bible has that kind of self-authenticating, this message is from God, where prophecies are made and then fulfilled. And it's just added bonus that archaeological finds also have reinforced so much of what the Scripture teaches. So God spoke in the past through the prophets in different ways, various ways. But God speaks in the present, verses 2 and 3, through his unique son. So we need to now write the word present in, because now God's speaking through his unique son. In the last verse... He spoke of speaking through multiple prophets. Now he speaks of present speaking through the unique son. So since Jesus came, look what it says in verse 2. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So when we think of last days, sometimes our minds go to the prophecies yet to be fulfilled. But in Scripture in the New Testament, when it talks about the last days, it basically is what is initiated now that Jesus has died and rose, ascended, is in heaven interceding. So um, since Jesus came, it has in a sense been the last days, and then there will be some final days of this age and ages to come, uh, etc. So um, 1 Peter 1.20 says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for us. 
So this was always God's plan to redeem humanity. We have to factor that into our discussion too of sin in the world and why bad things happen. But in verses two and three, just two verses, there's at least seven truths about the incomparable Jesus Christ that we're going to look over. The first one is that Jesus is the appointed heir, H-E-I-R, heir of all things. Um, he's the appointed heir of all things. And when we use the word heir, we're talking about um, uh, the one that gets it all. <laughs> you ever see the movie Secondhand Lions? Okay, what do they say? The kid gets it all. That's the will. The kid gets it all. <laughs> and that's what God said. The son gets it all. Everything that exists ultimately will come under the control of Jesus. That's why there's that great quote uh, from Abraham Kuyper that he said, there's not a single square inch in all of things that exist throughout the universe where Jesus doesn't say, mine! Amen. You know, it's his. Um, Daniel 7 said, I was watching the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus himself said it at his great commission. What did Jesus say at his great commission that shows that all dominion and authority are his? Anybody remember? Matthew 28, 18. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What did he mean when he said that? Um, the word authority is the word exousia. It's sometimes translated rights, sometimes translated authority, sometimes translated power. It is the word that talks about Jesus having the authority on earth to forgive sins. It is the word that talks about if anyone receives Christ, they get the power to become a child of God. It is the word that talked about him having the power, the authority, the right to cast out demons. He could speak the word and it happened. He's got that power. Now, what's interesting about that is that Jesus in Matthew 28 said, I've got all the authority, so you go therefore and make disciples. How, does those, how do those two things connect? Well, some of you have heard this story, but when my, um, when my uh, dad, uh, when my grandma was still living, my dad decided with his new wife to go on a cruise uh, that was going to be six weeks long. And dad's an only child, so you know, you, you know grandma could have lived another five, ten years. So dad went on the cruise, but he knew, man, if something happens during that time, uh, it could be rough for grandma there because I'm the one with the power of attorney to make decisions for her. So guess what he did? He has four kids. I'm the closest one. <laughs> and so uh, I was an hour and a half away. And so he, we did the paperwork. So he delegated to me power of attorney to represent grandma's interest during that time if something needed to be done. And sure enough, grandma went downhill and died during that time. So I had to be the one to say, yeah, let's do it. Let's do hospice. Let's do hospice, you know all the different things. Um, and so Jesus said, I've got the power of attorney. I've got the keys to it all. I've, I've, I've bought back the family farm at the cross. <laughs> and he says, so I'm going back to heaven and I'm delegating you the authority to represent me while I'm gone. He put that on us. He put that on us as Christians, along with our brothers and sisters around the world, he entrusted us to do the kind of things he would do if he was here, mm -hmm. to act the way he would act if he was here, to, you know, not all of us can heal like he could heal, 
Uh, some people can. If you can pray for someone to get healed, do it, you know. But we can all buy medicines and help people together, right? And Christians started hospitals. Christians started schools. Christians did this. They did that, you know, along the way because we've been trying to represent him. Sometimes we do it horribly as individuals. Sometimes we do it horribly as churches and denominations and things. But we know what he expects of us. And every time we can say, didn't Jesus say... And that doesn't look like what you're doing. So he's given us the thing to break the tie when one of us is acting stupid. Oh, well, yeah, uh, okay. So uh, when, when, when under the guise of church we forget what human sexuality is for, we've got it, right? We know what we're supposed to do um, and, and things like that. So, um, but, so he's the heir of all things, and he's delegated us a certain amount to represent him now. But he will reign on earth one day, and that's what Revelation Five is about when John's looking around and somebody needs to open the scrolls, that title deed to the earth, and set Satan out for all the crap he's done on earth. You know, uh, Jesus has the authority to do that, just like a homeowner can set out a bad tenant and one day can serve the legal papers. Jesus has the legal right to do that. Amen. I gotta say this: I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Amen. No, like, I feel really good. <laughs> Amen. I'm so glad to be here. Yes. I had to get it out of my mouth because I said it feeling Amen. so Amen. Soaking it up. Soaking it up. Well, that's how they feel, too. Every once in a while, a couple of days just do cartwheels right down here in front. <laughs> I feel so good. Amen. I love this church. Awesome. Amen. We love having you here, Kenny. Glad to, glad to have you with us. Well, secondly, Jesus made the universe. So he's the heir of all things, but he made the universe, too. You're filling the blank as universe. And look what it says there. He says, through whom also he made the worlds. So John 1.3 says, all things were made through him. Colossians makes a big deal about it too. And every once in a while you run into Jehovah's Witnesses or somebody else that thinks of Jesus as lesser than God the Father. Mm -hmm. But the Bible doesn't describe uh, him as lesser than. It describes him as equal to. And there is no higher God than creator of all things. There's no, there's no higher than that. That's it. And it's Jesus, right? It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit working in concert together. The third one is Jesus is the radiance or the brightness of God's glory there. So I'm sure if we just started reading through the different translations here, somebody would have the word radiance. And so this is important. The Son is not just reflecting God's glory. As God, he is radiating glory. The moon reflects the sun. That's what we want to do. We want to reflect God's glory. But man, the sun's what's keeping us warm, right? And so Jesus is more like the sun in this analogy than the moon. And so 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine on them. So another passage that goes along with uh, this one that says he's, been, he's the brightness of his glory. Um, I love John 17 where Jesus says, Father, I'm so looking forward to returning up there with you uh, to, to, you know, to share the glory that I shared with you from the foundation of the world. You know? So he's going back to what he always had and had limited himself voluntarily, limited himself while he was on earth. Man, if he wanted to, you remember the transfiguration? What happened at the transfiguration? What did Peter, James, and John see when they saw the, uh, what we call the transfiguration? They saw the glory of God. They saw Jesus all of a sudden dazzlingly white, glowing, you know, Moses and Elijah. Somehow they were able to recognize them uh, with them too. But Jesus was the center of attention. 
And uh, man, he could have walked around every moment on earth like that. He was pulling that back so that he could live the full human experience and not just seem like a constant rock star before everybody was before and stuff like that. You know, he, he had no, you know, Isaiah 52 says he, he had, he didn't allow himself to have something so beautifully special about him. It's just ordinary, you know, and yet he was the, the perfect man to go along with perfect God. Well, for Jesus is the express image of God's person and express image is the word we get character from. So write the word character in there. Now, Theologians speak of the attributes or the characteristics of God. So when he says here that he's the express image of his person, he's saying that if it's an attribute of God the Father, it's an attribute of God the Son. And we might add the same thing for the Holy Spirit. People get weirded out with the Holy Spirit, but if you are doing it right and you're uh, the Holy Spirit's using you and leading you. What's it going to look like? It's going to look like Christ, who says it's going to look like the Father. It's going to look like the love of the Father, the love of the love of Jesus, the love of the Spirit. And so, the Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Father is glorious. The Son is glorious. The Father knows everything. The Son knows everything. The Father is all powerful. Jesus is all powerful. God is love, Jesus is love. What did Jesus say in John 14, 9? You want to see the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. <coughs> and it doesn't mean there's not a distinction in the person of the Father and the Son. Jesus is like, you know, we're, you know this, is, this is a Godhead. This is a triunity. And so if you want to know what God's like, start with Jesus, right? That's why he came. The fifth thing is he upholds all things by his powerful word. Now think about how much is said here in two verses. I went through two whole chapters of this in Colossians to say what Hebrews says here in just a couple verses. He's the creator of all. He's the sustainer of all. He's the upholder of all. Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things hold together. So being the sustainer means, means he moves all things toward their God-ordained purpose. Uh, and so thank the Lord that he does, you know because uh, there's a lot of junk that happens in the world. Thank the Lord that uh, Jesus, uh, you know, is, is, is uh, up there in heaven. He's interceding for his saints. Uh, when the time comes, the Father will say, go get your bride. All the things Revelation says will unfold will. He'll return. Thousand years of glorious kingdom on earth. And then, of course, after the final judgment, the new heavens and the new earth. The sixth thing, he made purification for our sins. We talked about that a lot Sunday, but look how it says it here. When he had by himself purged our sins, purged our sins. So sometimes you'll hear preachers talk about things in the aorist tense. The aorist tense is something that's been completed with ongoing ramifications. And that's true of this word purged here. The cleansing in question being based on a past action is complete. It was accomplished at Calvary. Um, Saving others would be an impossible task for us, but not for the creator and upholder of all things. So again, we go back to Kenny's great story he told. Uh, Kenny saved the fellow once, and the still going to die. So hopefully during that time he's also turned to Christ, or knew Christ already, uh, because that will be eternal salvation, right? And so Jesus made purification for our sins. The seventh thing here in this wonderful 
way this book starts is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And let me tell you what priests on duty never did back in Old Testament days. They never, there's your fill in the blank, they never sat down as part of the sacrifice. Um, so let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus sit down? Why did Jesus sit down? Well, we sit down. Go ahead, David. He was done. He was done. He was done. Amen. He got her done, right? Get her done. We sit down for two different reasons, don't we? One reason we sit down is because we're halfway through something, like mowing the grass, and it isn't finished, so we need to take a break, hoping a glass of water and 15 minutes break will give us the strength to finish what's not finished. We sit down because there's more work to do after we rest a little bit. Now, that's not how Jesus sat down here. The other way we sit down is when the job is finished, we've finished mowing the grass, and now when we go and sit down, there's a look of relief on our face because our work is finished, we take off our shoes, we get a glass of iced tea or lemonade instead of water, and we flip on the ball game and we smile because our labor is completed, right? That's a whole lot closer to what Jesus did here, but it's still a little off. Let's, follow, let's take this illustration one level further, you know, because sometimes while we're watching that game, slipping that lemonade or iced tea there, we realize what? Next week we gotta do it all over again. Uh, and the lemonade is no longer sweet. The rest is not so refreshing. You see, what Jesus did when he sat down was categorically different than our tasks we have to do over and over again. Because when he sat down, it was because he had forever accomplished everything it would take to save those who would receive him. So Jesus said seven things from the cross, and one of them was just the words, tetelestai. And what is tetelestai? Just one word in the Greek. What does it mean in English? It is finished. Uh, in that day, it was an accounting term. A way they said, paid in full, no debt here. Uh, you know, so when the, you finally paid off the butcher, he'd write to Telestai on it, paid in full. You had the receipt, right? What was finished? Everything, so your final fill in the blank is everything there, everything it would take to create new life in sinners like you and me and uphold that salvation forever. And so if you've received Christ, then it's finished for you. Uh, based on what Christ has done for you, you are free from the penalty of sin. You will not go to hell when you die. Uh, you have the, just I'm going to end here with talking about the tenses of salvation to, related to this. So when a person trusts in Christ, they're saved from the penalty of sin. They won't go to hell when they die. That's the past tense. I have been saved. But sometimes you're reading in the Bible and it also says you are being saved and sometimes it reads you will be saved. Mm -hmm. So we've got the past tense, a person that trusts in Christ is saved from the penalty of sin. The future tense is that we'll be free from the very presence of sin when we get to heaven. That's what we call glorification. So justification in the past, just as if I never sinned because of what Jesus did for me. Glorification in the future, free from the very presence of sin. And then there's this present tense, this present tense. And the present tense is that I am being saved now from the power of sin. Sin only has the power I give it now through poor choices, and I can make different choices than I used to make. So I love the fact that past, present, future, the Lord is with us. So when we sin, Satan runs his mouth and... and, uh, and, and, and um, he says, uh, Danny doesn't deserve this. And the angel says, you're right. He doesn't deserve it. But 
As I look here, I see paid in full, and uh, it's got the name of Jesus by it. So the issue of your eternal life in Christ is settled when you become a Christian. Now you no longer sing, pass me not, O gentle Savior. Now you sing, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us, right? I want to make the most of this salvation because I want to experience all you have for me now in this life. And, uh, you know, I want to, as we talked about earlier, you know, I want to choose uh, what I want most, all that God can do in and through me now. I want to choose what I want most over what I want now when those habits, hang-ups, hurts, addictions, etc., call for me to return to past ways. I'm like, no, no, I want to go forward with Christ. I don't want to go backwards. And, of course, we mess up. We blow it. Uh, but we don't need to. 1 John 2, 1 says, I write these things so you do not sin. But if you do, you've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice, not only for our sins, but also those of the entire world. Well, let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts, as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.